Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He was trying to get the Tiffany's next to the Trump Tower, and it was a little hard to get there through the security for the president-elect. So Dennis Gartman decided to darken the doors. There you go. <laughs> you, guys, Good morning, sir. you guys will apparently let anybody on this show nowadays. Help, yes, help, the, help the liberals of America with the surprise of the election. I would suggest a Virginia, North Carolina guy like you really wasn't all that surprised. Assist the progressives listening. <laughs> you, people need to get in an airplane and fly over the great flyover part of the United States. And it, just it, go there. And go there. It, 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 it actually is quite civilized. You'd be surprised. They are our very nice, well, well-spoken, erudite people living in Peoria <clears throat> who are reasonably well-read, uh, who are cognizant of what goes on in the rest of the country, and are different than the coasts. But that's, that's indeed what happened. Some so of them, it was not all that surprising. Maybe you wrote about this this morning. Some of them want a 35% tariff on bad elites like you sending jobs abroad. And others, including leadership of the GOP and the House, go, uh, maybe not. Maybe not. Where are the checks and balances to Mr. Trump's rhetorical excesses? I think Mr. Ryan is a check and a balance to Mr. Trump's rhetorical excesses. If there is a problem with Mr. Trump, it is that this propensity on the part of, of, of he and others around him to, to put into effect or talk at least about a 35 percent tariff. What a, what a silly notion that would be, how detrimental that would be to the economy in general. Yes, to uh, small groups of people, to, to the labor unions, it makes sense. But you have to remember, you put a 35 percent tariff on a television and suddenly you are spending 35 percent more to buy that television. And that's the problem. Hopefully that shall not happen. Hopefully we do not take a, a chapter out of the middle of the 1930s when tariffs, the Smoot-Hawley tariff, took a, a medium-term and rather substantive recession and turned it into a depression. Hopefully there are wiser voices around. But on balance, i got to tell you, there's a greater sense of, of, of optimism out in the great flyover part of the United States than there had been a mere three weeks ago. It's how, demonstrable. How do you judge uh, Donald Trump's willingness to be checked and balanced uh, in this week <laughs> since the, the presidential election? We've watched his Twitter feed with, with great interest, but you know, you, you wonder if he's that quick to respond to what the media is saying, for instance, how well he's going to be able to have a conversation about smart trade policy. That is the great fear, isn't it? Uh, and, and actually, I put that in my newsletter this morning. Won't somebody around him please stop this man from tweeting? The problem is it doesn't appear that anybody's going to have the power to stop him. Please, Melania, stop this man from <laughs> tweeting. <laughs> All jokes aside, though, I mean, here, here uh, you know, he has the potential to do some real damage. I mean, you must yes. have been watching what he was, was saying about China, about Taiwan. With I, I was not as dismayed about what he said about China as, as other people were and are. I'm far more dismayed about the, the intention last week or the decision last week to, to push Carrier to do what they did, to, to push UTX to do what it had to do, and then to talk two or three days later about, once again, putting 35 percent tariffs into effect. That, that is bothersome. 
as long as we can yeah. avoid that, and I think we shall avoid that, as long as we can yeah. avoid that, things will be fine. I, I talk up, Dennis, how you're one of the few people that actually put your tick-by-tick -tick track record yeah. out to the public. It's been a brutal year for people gaming uh, the market. Yeah. Now you enjoy Fortress Diamond. 3.1 standard deviation moonshot on a monthly chart. The last time it did that was from the quiet of 2005, which isn't even comparable. Yeah. What does Dennis Gartman do if you buy and hold the banks and you've gotten this gift? Do you stay with them? I think you have to. I think there's something that is that is tectonic that really has occurred. Two things. The banks are going to do so much better over the course of the next five, six, seven years. And two, something I've been arguing about to put it into simplistic terms, I, I, I think that we're going to see the trumping, for lack of a better term, of the Mahoning Valley, the place where steel was born in the United States compared to Silicon Valley. What does that mean? I think it means that a, 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 if the Trump administration means anything, it does, in fact, mean uh, infrastructure rebuilding and simple things are going into infrastructure. Okay, but you, come on. You invented this. Donald Trump took the lesson from you if it drops on my foot. You own that phrase. That line, yeah. What is taking so long for that to happen. He ain't president yet. Okay, It's that simple. He's not president yet. And, and it will probably be... The, the whole concept of shovel ready is an utter misnomer. The shovels are ready, but it takes a long time given the fact that all those products or projects have to be done at state and local levels. Federal government can try to do something. Federal government can set the, the standard. Federal government can fund a bit of it, but the, the mass funding has to come from the state and from the local from localities, and it takes a long time to get that, that kind of thing passed through those various legislatures. It will take time, but it is time to buy the things that if you drop them on, the, on your foot shall hurt. And I, do, I have to admit, I think that's an interesting and simple but a correct mnemonic device. Dennis Gartman with us. We thank all the hate mail for coming in on uh, Gartman. He is the pinata of the street. Here's, a, here's some hate mail, David Girl, from one D. Cass down in Florida. Oh, Doug no. Cass says, I'm shorting the banks. I don't agree with Dennis. Why, how do you respond to a guy like Cass, who on a trading basis has been short this great bull market, and now he loads the boat and shorts the banks? Yeah, but he's getting, his golf game's getting so much better. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he sent me a scorecard the other day. He had three birdies in a row. Well done, Dougie. Well done. We say good morning to Mr. Cass. Seriously, folks, Doug Cass, uh, very cautious to short on the banks after the huge surge. David? Yeah, I'm eager to talk to you about oil. Uh, since we last spoke, we had yeah. this OPEC production yeah. a cut agreement. How optimistic are you that that's going to be uh, upheld? It won't be upheld. I mean, if history shows anything, it shows you that all OPEC decisions, all OPEC cuts in the past have always been overridden. They cheat. It's just a fact. Are they cheating right now? Well, the interesting thing is they began the cut from an already ramped up September, October, and early November production. So the cut is actually going, only going to take you back to October uh, levels of production. Two, they will cheat. That's just a matter of that, – that's only a matter of time. The, the new agreement doesn't go into effect till January 1st. I suspect that by March we will see a, a rather substantive amount of cheating. And it doesn't even take cheating. It takes us. We are going to continue to be larger and ever greater producers of crude oil. $52 WTI with a $4 contango to the one-year Gives you fifty six dollars for one year crude, and Excuse they're me. going to sell. We crude. need more jargon than that. Can we get? We need an additive jargon. What did you just say to the contango? The contango is the carrying charge. It's the cost. It, it's the of added, a tangible asset. Of a tangible asset, and crude is indeed a tangible asset. And and for the one year, it's the one year forward uh, crude oil trades right now at about two dollars and fifty cents premium to spot. 
That gives you a fairly comfortable, hedgeable arrangement. And I guarantee you, the banks are telling every E&P producer, produce, hedge, earn the carrying charge, and produce crude oil. What did the, the way that that meeting went down tell you about the future of this organization, the future of OPEC? I think the future of OPEC is doomed for, if for no other reason. The smartest guy in the room at OPEC is, is the, the, the deputy crown prince. And he's made it clear he understands 30 years from now, crude oil prices will be zero. It will be worthless. Something else will have supplanted crude oil. He understands that, and he intends to sell his crude before that. Mm. Joseph and I, in another world from you, of international relations, is adamant about American exceptionalism. Sure. I want you to state for us, and it permeates your newsletter, the defeatists of America. What do they get wrong, and particularly what do they get wrong in capitalism? They get everything wrong. They get, for example... The one thing, there are certain things in this world that you can count on, but you can count on the fact that every year, drought in, rain out, America's farmers are going to produce more and better crops every single year than they did the year before. Technology drives that fact. We are now producing, don't hold me to the number, but perhaps four to five times more soybeans on the same acreage than we did a mere 30 years ago. We will produce more 10 years from now than we produce now. We have learned through technology how to drill for crude oil so much more efficiently, so much at, at, a, at a much greater pace with a greater success ratio. They, they, the, the defeatists miss what we do. We are the greatest minds in the country, when it, in the world, yeah. when it comes to production. We enjoy the morning with Dennis Gartman of the Gartman Letter. No, we will not send out his letter. We protect the copyright of all of our guests and particularly the joy of Dennis Gartman's beliefs in the back of his newsletter. One of his foundation beliefs is gold, not in dollar terms, but in yen and euro terms. Uh, It's a really ugly chart. It really is. It's a classic pop bull market and then a Trumpian rollover to 1172 an ounce. Some gurus will tell me support is 900 it's possible. Are it's, you long or short the golden beast? I am still long of gold in euro terms and in yen terms. I have no urge to buy any in dollar terms because I'm a bull on the U.S. dollar. Uh, I'd rather own something in terms of a currency that I think is going to devalue in, in relationship, relationship to the buck. But do I wish I owned any gold at all right now? I wish I'd sold a goodly portion of what I had, which is in my retirement fund, two or three weeks ago. Wait, wait we get inflation from Mr. Trump, from the Republicans in Washington. Uh, we may. We get inflation, gold goes up, right? Uh, not necessarily. There there have been plenty of times when we've had inflationary impulses and gold hasn't gone up. On the other hand, there have been periods of deflation in the past when gold has gone up. Gold, I think, is, is misunderstood. I don't think it's an inflationary harbor any longer. I think it's simply a currency relative to other currencies. And having started in the business... In the early 1970s, at dear old NCNB, now Bank of America, Britain, yeah. uh, when uh, when when we traded one currency against another, I think of gold as simply being another currency, not not a harbor of, of safety, not a, a a place of value in an inflation. Tom mentioned the the lira a few minutes ago, and you've written about that in, in your newsletter. The yeah. moves that we've seen there. What's driving it, and, and uh, what do you see as the outlook for that? You mean the Turkish lira? Yes, exactly. Well, I, it, it's first of all, I don't, <clears throat> I don't trust the Turkish government under Erdogan yeah. for as, as far as I can throw him, uh, and, and he's fighting a, a rear guard action. The fact that you had the president of a com- of a country come out and say they need to lower rates, and the bank of the, the central bank has in fact right within minutes raised rates, tell you he's got a problem. Where's the where's the Turkish lira going? Probably demonstrably lower. 
if for no other reason that the dollar itself is demonstrably strong. Looking at euro dollar right now at 107.37, are you surprised in light of what we saw in Italy that it is yeah. where it is? Oh, yeah, I am. I'm surprised. I, I thought when they – it looked to me in the middle of the night after the votes had been counted and, and, and when I, I get up every morning at 1 o'clock in the morning to write the letter and we were trading 105.20, 105.05 had been given. It looked like 105, the big figure, was going to be given and then suddenly there was a defense at 105. Next thing you know, everybody who's short, including myself uh-huh. – ran for cover, and the next thing it's trading 107. But if you take a big look at the, at the big picture over the course of the last year, is that rally from 105 to 107, I think we got a 107.80 bid, if I'm not mistaken, at one time yesterday. Is that is that technically important? No. The, the lows are lower, the highs are lower, and it still looks to me like a bear market. When you look ahead here to the, the ECB meeting this week, what's, what are your expectations in terms of what we'll hear from, from Mario Draghi? I think we'll hear very little. I think, they'll, I think yeah. they'll kick the football into the next year. It's Christmas time. Their propensity to take any action whatsoever is extremely yeah, but- limited. There will be rhetoric. There will be verbal uh, uh, action. But will there be any real action? I think not. But, but again, and it goes to the back half of your newsletter, which is essentially on the exogenous shocks to worry about. What's your outside shock you're worried about? What am I shocked? Starting with European banking, but what's the one that, that keeps Dennis Gartman up at night till 1 a.m. when he writes in granite and chisels out his <laughs> newsletter? The, the one thing that keeps me up at night are the Chinese and what the, whatever they're up to in the, in, in, in the, the South China uh, Sea. That keeps me up at night. I'm always worried about what the North Koreans are capable of doing at any one time. They are more Trumpian than Mr. Trump is. And, and he at least only tweets. They actually take action at times. I, I, I stay awake worrying about that. Um, I stay awake about – I stay awake nowadays worrying about what Mr. Trump is going to tweet out. That, that bothers me at great in, in, in mm. far more than it probably should. One final question. Bill Gross talks about a decade of financial repression. Can you say the financial repression for conservative people, retirees, savers, can you say it's over? I think it's over. I think we're going to see – I think the – honestly – I think the 35-year bear market in the bond market uh, in in rates, the 35-year bull market in bond prices has ended. I think it ended six months ago, and I think rates are going to be not dramatically higher, but certainly demonstrably higher. Can we get back, can we get the Fed funds rate over the course of the next three or four years back to three percent? Can we get the 10-year bond, the 10-year note, back to a five percent yield? Sure, I think we can do that without doing any damage to the economy. Independence Bowl, what's your forecast? The uh, <laughs> NC State versus yeah, Vanderbilt. They will kick off at noon. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think that both teams will. The, the, the in, in the in the words of in, in, in the words of my high school phys ed teacher Bobby Knight, the team with the most points shall win. There you go. A sound of forecast is any time. The Independence Bowl. The Independence Bowl. 26th, I think. Coming next year, folks. The Surveillance Bowl. We're trying. Trying hard. Thank you so much. Kate Moore joins us, Chief Equity Strategist at BlackRock, as I said. Good morning, Kate. Let's start with uh, with this referendum and, and the fallout from it, so much as there is one here in, in U.S. equity markets. How, how were market participants, how were investors watching what was going on uh, in Italy? 
You know, I think we've been talking a lot about how markets have been shrugging off recent uh, political changes. And I'm wondering really if that's going to extend itself into 2017 as we get further into European elections. You know, there's a sense at one level that there's a bit of a narrative change, that we're going to have more stimulus, that the people are talking, that the government has to answer. And then there's a sense on the other side that, you know, this doesn't actually change meaningfully the path of, of the economy, particularly, I think, when it comes to the market reaction to Italy. So I don't know. Is it fair to say the markets have been schizophrenic? What <laughs> one could, you know, you get you get this no vote. Uh, Renzi's staying on here, but as you say, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done here. How optimistic are you that in the next twelve eighteen months something is going to is going to happen, or are the politics going to overshadow everything? Do you think? I'm pretty focused on the politics, yeah. to be fair. I would love to tell you that I'm, I'm absolutely optimistic that we're going to see a significant acceleration in growth, that all of these changes end up being, you know, just sort of blips uh, on a longer term. Uh, positive trajectory. But, you know, the thing I keep coming back to is what this does to business confidence, what this does to investment Mm. sentiment, you know, and whether or not, given all this uncertainty, we actually get an increase in spend. Or let's say if you're a consumer or household and you think about borrowing money, you know, when there's so much political uncertainty and the future of Europe is in question, do you really look to, you know, lever yourself up and, um, you know, take advantage of, of, of this environment? I don't know. <laughs> I was going to ask you to answer your rhetorical question there. Yeah. I, I would say waiting on the sidelines and being a little bit more cautious is, is prudent at this point. Continue with business as usual, but perhaps not accelerate any of your spend or investment from here. I was going to ask you if this is all part of a, of a continuum. Uh, we had the news uh, out of France yesterday, another candidate for, for president there from the, the socialist center-left side of things. Uh, and it strikes me that the longer this continuum gets, the more events like this probably take upon, that take less import than they would have in the past. That's right. I, I wonder if we all have a little bit of a, a political news fatigue, too, mm. because um, it's been a nonstop uh, array of, of big events and, you know, analysis of every politician's speech. And it, we were already in that mode when it came to policymakers, particularly on the monetary side. Um, and, and now here we are trying to really discern what every politician is trying to try and do and, you know, their policy priorities. The one thing I would also note, though, is, you know, if all of these political changes have huge impacts on currencies and sustained impacts on currencies, and that ends up ha- helping someone's relative purchasing power or uh, the, the earnings of exporters, I think that may actually help the economy in, in the near term. But it's really too soon to say how sustainable that is. So you can hear me. I'm a little bit of a skeptic. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a skeptic. There you go. I mentioned those two big monetary policy events, one this week, one next. Is that taking on less importance? Is monetary policy taking on less importance in light of all of the the, the politics that we've seen? I was totally unaware that we had some monetary <laughs> policy coming up. Uh, of course, that's not Happy true. Happy to remind you of that. Of course, yeah. that's not true. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that actually, you know, if you were to ask me between now and, and kind of year end, you know, what am I most focused on of any sorts of events? Mm. It's, it's actually going to be ECB on Thursday. Uh, I'm less interested in the Fed next week, uh, unless there was a, a meaningful shift, and then all of a sudden they decided to step away and not continue the path of normalization. But I think you know what the ECB does in terms of talking about um, bond purchases in 2017 and onwards, whether or not they would consider tapering or extending the program, I think that's going to have a huge impact and will really move markets. Mm. And there's a small meeting later this week. <laughs> small. It'll be amazing. I, I can't imagine what he will say at his uh, always eagerly anticipated press conference. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom King, Kate Moore with us. 
Kate, within the rotation, you've said the word rotation four or five times through the morning (laughs) here as well. I think we need to define that. What is rotation and what does it mean for our listeners' investment? So when I've been talking about rotation, you're right, Tom, totally fair to call me out on using that (laughs) word a dozen times this morning, but I'm only one cup of tea in. Yeah. What I would what I would say is this 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 rotation within the equity market happened and started to happen before the U.S. election. It was away from some of the bond proxy stocks. You know, broadly, we'll say that's utilities, telecom, and consumer staples, and towards some of the more value and cyclical plays, particularly towards financials, I would say, and energy. Uh, that accelerated after the election, and you can actually really see a meaningful departure from first half performance, second half performance, and then you know, supercharged in the last month. That's what I'm talking about in terms mm-hmm. of the rotation, and really away from, you know, investor right. darlings into sectors people had much lower exposure to. So so help me, and maybe this goes with a Roper merger that was just announced. I believe Karen uh, Moscow got that into her mm-hmm. discussion. They're buying, is it Dell Tech, Yep, David? that's right. Yeah. Uh, Roper Technologies, um, uh, getting it up here, of uh, Sarasota, Florida, 10,000. They, they, they manufacture, they distribute industrial uh, equipment. Those are the people Donald Trump wants to help. We mentioned tariffs before. How do you fold the president-elect's rhetoric maybe policy and actually your guesstimate of his real policy into buying, acquiring shares of industrials. And then here's the hard part and then holding them. Yeah. How do you do that? Uh, Tom, that's a great question. I would say because industrials are the one sector where I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty. The market did price in an absolutely optimistic scenario, both in terms of infrastructure spend and onshoring, but it's really not so straightforward. And in fact, I would just take us back a few weeks to how companies in that sector guided, not just for fourth quarter, the forward quarter, uh, but also for the next 12 months. It was very, very mixed, Tom. And I think that's what we need to recognize. We have to also look at the policy changes, but but, but focus on the fundamentals. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd say I'm a Cautious, a little bit cautious, yeah. you know, given the recent run in the sector. The market priced it in, priced it in very fast. Too fast, do you think? I mean, is it overshooting there a bit? You know, you look at those first couple of days post the election, and, and, and some of these potential policies got priced in very, very quickly, mm-hmm. and then backed off. I would say the, the, the big example there would be large cap pharma and, it, you know, kind of broadly healthcare, where there was a great amount of optimism of a bit of a relief rally and then sort of a, well, we don't know what this means for affordable care and we're still concerned about pricing when it comes to uh, private insurers. So, you know, and a bit of a back off. But then some of this stuff can, has continued to run. And those are the sectors, as I mentioned before, that were already in favor and moving ahead of the, of the election. Help us understand the, the weight of the variable of trade policy here. Uh, A lot of people saying, we heard what he had to say on the campaign trail, heard what Donald Trump had to say on the campaign trail. He's going to limit what he's said when he gets into office itself. And we see these tweets over the weekend. As you're looking ahead to the the health of the economy, how much is that weighing on, on your outlook? I think trade policy is enormous. People, people, we can't separate out what could happen to the U.S. dollar. Um, or what could happen to the global supply chain, or what could happen to the average cost of goods purchased by the average consumer who has not actually experienced significant wage gains or any wage gains. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think stuff sounds good when it comes out perhaps on a tweet. It looks like it's protecting the American people, but there's a far distance between some of that rhetoric and a positive impact 
um, in terms of over, someone's yeah. overall spending. Kate Moore with us with BlackRock. We've been talking up a storm here on the break. Let's talk about technology and hydrocarbons. There's always a point where something gets stupid within the S&P valuation, like it makes up 21 or 18% or whatever of the S&P 500 index. I would suggest hydrocarbons right now aren't stupid. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing sort of big, ugly technologies, not stupid. But is technology a value trap? What portion of the S&P is it? And is it a value trap? Look, uh, without question, the importance of technology has increased. But I would say, you know, it's hard for me to say it's a value trap. The multiples didn't get crazy. There was actually so much earnings growth and sales growth in that sector for a long time. It's obviously slowed a little bit, and estimates for 2017 are not as aggressive. But, you know, it is a sector, I think, that incorporates uh, some real high-flying companies and some kind of older tech and where it may pay to be a little bit more specific and discerning. I would also say it's a sector that was a huge consensus overweight for some time. And a consensus overweight going into this rotation, I want to use it for 13 times now, Tom, um, in, <laughs> that, that started in the beginning, uh, pardon me, the second half of, of 2016. So uh, it's a place where I think people can continue to reduce their positions in order to fund um, some of their buying into energy or into cyclicals or some of the kind of more value plays I was mentioning in terms of U.S. bank stocks. There was so much commentary after the election looking at technology in specific, which was down uh, on the heels of, of the election results, that it was directly attributable to what happened on November the 8th. Yeah. Looking looking back at the election now, is there anything that we've seen since that you can tie that to, or is it just the uncertainty generally uh, in terms of rotation, it's not that. Well, you, you could argue if it was just about the election, then people should really like a lot of these mm. technology companies with huge amounts of cash uh, offshore. And if that's coming back, and it would be great to own the shares, especially if some portion of that cash is used for buybacks or special dividends. But I think this was really about people getting more constructive on the banks, which were the consensus underweight, and which we had become more constructive on and sort of had been talking about throughout the fall. And that needing to fund... Um, you know, find some place to actually, you know, uh, to, to get cash to well, decrease that underweight. And I don't even think we're at neutral yet, frankly. Are the they sector. still underweight? Yes, I think so. Um, not meaningfully underweight, but modestly underweight. Look, I've had a number of conversations within BlackRock, outside of BlackRock, where portfolio managers and investors have said, you know, if they were overweight, the banks going in, or, or at least neutral, they felt pretty good about it. But the speed at which these these stocks moved has made them cautious about doubling or tripling <clears throat> down. Yeah. So I think that people are still phasing into the sector. Mike, I'll give you a phase into the sector. Uh, J.P. Morgan is basically a moonshot. I mean, if you look at it on a monthly basis... And you look at two stand. I mean, David, it's it's un. Where's that chart again? There it is. <laughs> it means way out past three standard deviations on a monthly chart. It's a moonshot. I'm quite familiar with the 70, shape of the J.P. Morgan. Seventy-five uh, to eighty-three. Yeah. I thought the bank was about ready to fall apart after you left. <laughs> I, I hardly think that's <laughs> the case. It is. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is a very very solid institution. Uh, Probably didn't even notice I was gone, Tom. Oh. Um, but the but the point of the I matter is, Jamie Dimon wore black for three weeks <laughs> after you you left. I wear black every day. But, but you, seriously, you're telling me the banks are a value too big to fails. I know. I think yeah. the banks have so many things going for them at this point. You know, outstanding balance sheets, which we knew, uh, better cash return to shareholders, which we knew, which was sort of like skeptically. Um, you know, uh, taken in by the market. Uh, we actually also were seeing good. 
green shoots. I hate using green shoots, but it's green shoots in terms of economic expansion. We're rotating. Excuse me. We're rotating the green shoots, David. We're pretty constructive on the U.S. economy and actually see see good reason to believe we were going to get an acceleration in growth, uh, not just because of this election, but just in terms of overall demand um, in 2017. In addition, if we have less regulatory pressure, I think that's a that's a real help. And of course, we've got this reflationary theme, which is steepening the yield curve, and it's you know going to help overall earnings. We think, especially over the next couple quarters, there are a lot of things that have aligned at the same time yeah. to make the banks an interesting buy. J.P. Morgan is out three standard deviations for the first time since May of 2006, and then it was from extremely quiet. 2004, 2005. That's how rare the Trump surge is for Mr. Diamond Fortress. Fortress Trump. Maybe that's what we'll call J.P. Morgan. Kate Moore, thank you so much. She is with BlackRock, uh, giving us wisdom on the equity. Fortress uh, Trump, Tom, I think it's on 5th Avenue and 56th. (laughs) There it was yesterday. I I didn't lie this time to go across one block. The New York Police Department called me up and said, you're a bad influence. Yes, I'm going to Gucci. (laughs) We'll continue. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Well, it's a real pleasure to have a legend on the line from Rye in New York. That's Mario Gabelli, founder of Gabelli Funds, uh, schooled by Dodd and Graham. Joining us now by phone from Rye, as I say, Mario, good morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, delighted to be here. Talk about stocks. There you go. Well, let me, let me ask you, first of all, what these last few weeks have been like. We've been talking with guests about how they processed what happened on November the 8th, uh, going into the, the morning afterward. Uh, give us your sense of, of what's happened here and how it's changed your outlook. Uh, hasn't changed anything other than the reestablishment of a basic fundamentals of allocation of capital towards capitalism as opposed to socialism. In any event, the, uh, both Hillary and Donald were basically going to push for a couple of areas that were fairly obvious, one of which was infrastructure spending, the other one was military spending. So, you know, we were there. And, uh, the, uh, you know, the change uh, in administration basically allows new changes at who is going to run the regulatory agency like the Federal Communications Commission. What does that mean? And uh, things like, uh, you know, banks and consolidation in the banking industry. You bring up infrastructure. Let's start there. There was so much enthusiasm among investors after Donald Trump was elected. Uh, A lot of people betting on the fact that there is going to be an infrastructure spending package. When you look at a sector-by-sector basis, when you look at utilities, say, uh, is it oversold at this point? Well, 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 you're you're off the deep end. Let's talk about infrastructure, cement, roads, bridges, inland waterway. Inland waterway, the the, uh, locks on the Mississippi where our grain goes to export, like soybeans are big export products. That's got to be focused on. We've got to eliminate the bottlenecks and just drive around Manhattan. Independent of all of that, what does infrastructure mean? It means airports and uh, equipment rental companies, uh, URI, Ashtead in London, uh, Herc Rentals, and there's three or four others. They benefit. It's a $45 billion industry that was hidden. 
But you go back a year ago, one year ago, December 15, 2015, the U.S. government passed a five-year bill for highway fixer-upper called Fast Fix America Surface Transportation. Stocks like a company in Chattanooga doubled before this happened. It's called Aztec. Companies like Genco, which make asphalt equipment, yeah. those continue to get tailwinds. Mario, how do you respond to somebody who says, okay, that's great, Mario. I read in Barron's from you or listened to you on surveillance on URI, United Rentals. Talk about you can't make money in stocks, folks. 14.9% per year over the last decade. How do you respond, Mario, to the person who says, I didn't get in, I'm too late? Well, that's the question mark that's always good. I think Buffett makes the, uh, the case, and I'll just echo his comments about the next 10 years. America is great. American investing will be terrific. And uh, to the degree that you own a company and you buy hold. Look, if you bought Warren Buffett's company somewhere around 1977 when I started the firm, you probably um, compounded at 20%. At any time over the last 30 years, people would say it's overpriced. So I'm I'm uh, think that right. a index fund will grow from um, seven eight nine percent, right. and I, uh, active management will do better. I need you to get you wound up this morning, Mario <laughs> Gabelli, on the people that say companies shouldn't do share buybacks, they should stop financial engineering, they should go out and find investment even if it doesn't work. That upsets you a little bit, doesn't it? Not a, not really. I think it's not inappropriate to allocate capital to uh, the way a CEO thinks to the degree that you were basically putting money in 20 years ago in open-heart furnaces because you were in that business and you wanted to continue in that business. You know, that was not smart. Just think of Cuba. Just think of China. They did the same thing. So when you look at the American capitalistic system, you know, you want to allow with all of the errors and all of the mistakes, allow that capital to be formulated and, and put in. I have no problem if a company is selling materially low intrinsic value to buy it. Is uh, uh, 30 seconds and we're going to come back, Mario. Is Donald Trump good for Mario Gabelli? I think uh, the notion of a uh, lower corporate taxes, com- global competitiveness for American industry, somewhat less regulation, and the uh, reestablishment of the entrepreneurial innovation, creative innovation that made America great is not bad for any entrepreneur like myself and My- anyone else that wants to succeed. To give you an idea of the pixie dust of Mario Gabelli, and trust me, folks, there's years that he would rather forget. Rarely, if ever, have I seen back-to-back years in the 94th percentile. That would be the Gabelli Equity Trust, a closed-end fund, GAB. is Well, Mario, did the banks have anything to do with your 2012-2013 excellence? No, I think it was a combination of transactions and coming off the uh, lackluster performance in the prior years. Talking about banks, that uh, we're looking at all of the banks in uh, Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida that will be uh, part of a consolidation effort. So, you know, anything under 2 or $3 billion, all of a sudden they've got a new tailwind, Tom. Well, how does it change? How does the bank analysis dialogue change with the politics of Washington? Oh, I think it's fairly simple. They uh, eliminate the uh, the uh, they raise the ceiling of fifty billion dollars before you have to file a, a large number of extra forms, and the uh, the list is pretty simple. Anybody can just go out and get a Russell two thousand index of banks and I- identify those areas rather than me identifying them for you. But that's easy. Uh, you know, it just requires a little elbow grease. On the other side, in the infrastructure area, one of my favorites is Case New Holland. Uh, it's a farm equipment company. Uh, it's a uh, construction equipment company. They have trucks in, in, in Europe, which is improving. And uh, the stock's around $8.75 in U.S. and CNHI, and it's 
uh, controlled by the Agnelli family, and I think it's uh, quite uh, quite attractive. So there's a whole bunch, Tom, when you say about entry points. What do I want to own? How do I make money over the next three or four years? And how do I pay lower capital gains taxes during that period while I'm holding it? That's Tom, what the individual investors think about, not the professional investors the, the managing tax-free money, though. Tom mentioned uh, your prowess for, for media in particular, and uh, our colleague David Weston sat down with Les Moonves, the president, chairman, and CEO of CBS uh, yesterday. Uh, I know that you have been actively watching and engaged with the, the conversations about the future of Viacom, the future of CBS. Are you are you looking forward to? Do you want to see here a merger, uh, a deal with both these companies, and do you want to see Moonves running it? Uh, basically, Les is terrific. One of the great executives in America. Uh, we have blessed this this country with so many good CEOs. Uh, basically, the decision is going to be made, obviously, by National Amusements. National Amusements, obviously, is trying to go through the fairness. Our clients own uh, most of the majority, the minority, in terms of voting stock in both CBS and Viacom. So hopefully, if there's an issue in terms of fairness and extreme of fairness opinions, or uh, you know, uh, we will have an important say in it. And we're not opposed to a merger. We've gone through this before. So Viacom yeah. was spun off from CBS. It was put, they bought CBS and a lot of going things going on within the, all companies within the dynamics here Mario, is a basic idea of animal spirit I, I guess we believe i just did a chart of the monthly uh, jp morgan chart it's a moonshot folks at 3.1 standard deviations i mean it is a trump moonshot on the equity markets would you suggest m and I mean i was with you mario one day and the next day cadbury was taken out mm. is that game going to continue well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Cadbury because one of the ones on potentially a transaction list is one that, you know, Irene Rosenfeld went after Cadbury. And um, Mondelez is certainly at around $41, uh, you know, kind of an interesting consolidation play on its own. Either they're going to buy someone or someone will b merge with them to create scale on a global basis, Tom. How is the, the environment for the, the, the atmosphere for mergers and acquisitions right now? Well, it's not changed. We go through the last 60 years, and we go through a variety of cycles. And this one here, you know, may have some tailwind, particularly if uh, you allow capital to be flowed back to the United States and have a corporate tax that is not based on uh, world taxation but territorial taxation so that companies in the United States, particularly big farmers, utilities will merge. You, you know, you get a whole bunch of companies that will consolidate. And the entertainment business is just another example. And content and connectivity. Uh, so you'll see a lot of uh, potential deals. Even this morning while we're talking to you, I just tweeted that uh, XYZ mm -hmm. company is being taken over in a cash tender offer. Mario, let's do some job, uh, constructive job advice for our global Wall Street audience. To the Young Turk, who's level one, level two, level three CFA, they're doing securities analysis either full-time or they're certainly aware of it. What is the new new for you in terms of analyzing a company's performance and potential? Well, we just look at how management allocates capital, Tom, That's but nothing's changed. I mean, basically, it's Graham Dodd, Murray Greenwald, that methodology. You know, if you want to be the CEO of a public company, if you want to do deals and be private equity, if you want to understand how to do merger and acquisition work, you know, the notion of doing fundamental research and sticking to it, the problem is getting paid for it. Ever since uh, Spitzer uh, put his rules out, it has become extraordinarily hard for the sell side, which is a great training ground, to uh, basically uh, pay for analysts. And uh, so where are the analysts going? Where are they doing the work? And, it's, and that's yeah. Uh, yeah, the quandary. Tell me about Generous Electric. If it's about the CEO and allocation of capital, has Mr. Immelt done a good job? 
Well, uh, clearly this deal with Baker Hughes and merging uh, their uh, you know, uh, energy business into that. Mm-hmm. And look at what they're doing in the additive area with uh, Joyce, uh, who runs their engine business, making acquisitions in Europe because uh, he wants to get into the three-dimensional metal additive business. You know, they've got to move uh, capital around. They've been shrinking the cap. The uh, stock is uh, a pretty good surrogate for industrial activity on a global basis. Clearly, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their water business and uh, obviously some other industries. So the notion of capitalism is to allow you to make managements to make mistakes and uh, you know make acquisitions and also sell investments, but at the same time reposition the company for the dynamics of growth and not stay frozen like Cuba yeah. did for 50 years. I hear you talking about the, the need for – uh, tax reform for regulatory reform, and I wonder the degree to which uh, you're working hard to make sure that, that Donald Trump is hearing you out. Are, are, are you somebody who wants your opinions known? We're, we're talking about him here, but are, are you satisfied this is a president-elect who's listening to guys like you? I hope, I hope he's not listening to me. There are, a lot of smarter people, there are a lot smarter people out there that can give him advice. I'm just basically an old-fashioned stock picker that has done a fat, you know, work hard for my clients, and that's all we're going to focus on. No politics, no sex, no religion. But we will listen to Tom Keen and Bloomberg. We're going to leave it there after that, Shane. <laughs> and, and on that note, Mario, thank you so that. much. Mario Gabelli, greatly <laughs> uh, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.